Welcome to the Critical Futures Podcast. It's critical because the time is now to conjure the world and communities we want to live and thrive in. But it's also futurity, or the intentional imagining and materializing of liberated futures where freedom from oppression, trauma, violence, and discrimination are realized. In this series, we chat with members of the Anti-Racism Consortium in partnership with the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. These are conversations between organizations and their community partners to highlight how to deeply work with community in a way that shares power and moves us all towards liberation. Greetings, listener, and thank you for joining us on the Critical Features podcast in partnership with the Institute for Healing, Justice, and Equity at St. Louis University. Today, we are joined by Dr. Rhonda Ballou, Professor of Public Health and Associate Dean of Community Engagement at University of Texas, San Antonio, and her community partner, Michelle Legalia Holland, a community consultant. Welcome, both of you. I am so excited to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you. So the name of our podcast is Critical Futures. When you hear that phrase, what does that mean to you and your work on anti-racist health policies and research on structural racism in healthcare? I, I think it, I can take it literally in that um, anti-racist work is, is literally critical to the survival of, of humanity and the, and the progress of of those that are disenfranchised and, and, and people of color. It's, it's absolutely critical to, to the long-term survival. And I do mean life and death survival. I'd add to that. That's where my mind went first. I heard like two things that were invited to think about exactly what Rhonda just shared. And then also it feels like an invitation to be curious and questioning about the status quo and intentional about disrupting the present so we can have a better future. And that asking questions about why are things this way and then following that uh, curiosity into action uh, is critical. I love that, Michelle, because the idea that curiosity is a salve that heals, right? That it allows us to open up the space of possibility to ask questions, to, to understand that we don't have all the answers. And I think when we're working in community, that's a really pivotal perception to have, right? That we don't have all the answers, that we have to look to our communities and be curious about our community's needs and not prescriptive. So when we think about some of these sort of critical and pressing issues related to anti-racist health policies and structural racism in healthcare, what do you think are the most critical and pressing issues? I'm not sure we're doing great yet. So I'd say all of them. I was just some my husband has um, is a white man and he was just holding space for his staff in a retreat. And he shared about um, just how some of the black women in his work were all of them shared how traumatic um, their birth experiences were in hospitals. And my birth was traumatic, which is why we were talking about not my birth. The childbirth of my firstborn was traumatic, which is why we were talking about it. And I was just, it just was this really frustrating moment to realize like we have all the literature, we've been doing the research, we've done the focus groups, we've had the books and the, and the TV specials, yet somehow we still hear the same stories coming out, especially when it comes to Black people. And so I think the pressing issues really continue to be around equity and reducing disparities, but specifically the well-being of Black people seems to be a needle that we cannot move. Uh, yet. And I'm ready for that. No, I, I 100% agree. And I think it's really on, on all levels. And you asked that question, and I'm just like, 
how do I even narrow that down to answer it? Because there are access issues. Mm -hmm. Can you even get care in the first place? So, so before we even start thinking about what happens during a healthcare encounter, you have to be able to get a healthcare encounter. Mm -hmm. So, how do you get one? Mm -hmm. Right? Do you have a job that has insurance that allows you to to have healthcare and to access healthcare? Can you get on a bus or get in a car to go get healthcare? Can you get online and make an appointment? Right. So there's the can you actually go and get healthcare? Period. Mm -hmm. Just period for for basic things, um, and then there's that once you're in healthcare, are you getting good quality care? So are you getting care that's 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 respectful, that shows empathy, that's timely, and and um, that's the the right care at the right time. And so, um, you know, as as we move towards you know a, a value based care system, because I mean in general, we you know, well, factually and from research, we're the you know one uh, developed quote unquote nation that has the worst bang for the buck in terms of healthcare dollars. So we're, you know, we're trying to fix that and move towards value based care where people don't get paid for, you know, systems don't get paid for the procedures they do. They get paid for, you know, what the quality of the procedure, how the patient fares, the patient's perception, um, you know, how, how, how the care works. And, you know, there's no, if you're trying to operationalize value, there's no racism and value. Those things don't go together. So, I mean, the, the question is just, it, it just is infused in every area of health and healthcare and from access to, um, to treatment and even, you know, discharge, you know, mm -hmm. what happens when you're, you know, after healthcare, mm -hmm. how do you follow up? How do you prevent needing certain healthcare procedures again that are, are preventable and and even how do you prevent needing some so much healthcare? Yeah, you know, if you're food insecure or poverty. I mean, it, it's 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 pervasive to the point where it's it's even hard to narrow down and answer that question because it's it's pervasive and in cities across the life course and across systems. So when when taken together, both of your answers essentially are saying. Racism is embedded in every part of the healthcare system mm -hmm. and a bunch of other systems, which is why we can't even see the needle move when it comes to the well being of those who are most marginalized, specifically Black folks, Indigenous folks, you know, folks living with disabilities. And so when we think about, think about that huge picture issue, what are you and your community partners working on to chip away at that huge big picture issue? Yeah, um, I'll talk about some of the work that I've been involved with here in San Antonio. I just uh, was previously the chief strategy officer at an organization called San Antonio for Growth on the East Side. And I'm not sure how much Rhonda has told you about lovely San Antonio, Amber, but um, I moved here from Chicago. And one of the things that I noticed immediately, kind of viscerally, is that Black people are not as visible here as any cities that I've ever lived in. We are straddling somewhere between six to eight percent whether or not you're counting the metro area or just the city of san antonio and so what that looks like in practice is i when i moved here i would see probably one or two of the same black people every day and i wouldn't see a new black person maybe for like maybe every two weeks i might run into a new black person but like driving on the highway or something like that um, and so disparities and, and a couple of other things about San Antonio. San Antonio repeatedly has been top of the list uh, when it comes to large metro areas. 
uh, when it comes to poverty uh, and economic segregation. And so there's a tale of two cities that, that we've seen in other cities that most of us love and have lived in. Uh, but there's also been concentrated and generational poverty for a very long time in this community. And so uh, before I worked at SAGE, um, which is an organization that focuses on the east side of San Antonio, which is historically where African-Americans have lived, there's actually an overpopulation of African-Americans compared to the rest, their population across the city. The community, I want to say, is 12% African-American uh, versus the African-Americans are about 6 to 8% depending on the metro area. And so historically, there's a story that comes with that that we could probably pull in from other places that we've lived. Away. Uh, what is it like in the Black neighborhood? Um, and unfortunately, many of the things that have become stereotypical about those spaces continue to be real and true on the east side in 2022. Uh, no satisfying grocery stores. Infrastructure is getting better. Uh, an African-American and poor community that is concerned about being pushed out. Uh, just deserts of all kinds, whether, they, whether it's digital inclusion to quality education, um, a, a plethora of churches and dollar stores. And so uh, there's a lot of the same challenges that we see. And the organization SAGE was really focused to think about the economic growth and the community development of the organization, recognizing that if those are two systems that we align appropriately, we may have a chance to actually impact this organization. But centered in equity, uh, how can we impact the community in a way that doesn't leave behind the people who are there now? Uh, prior to that, I was the mayor of San Antonio's director of policy, um, and I would say from a system level, that was probably um, the first job where I felt like I really had the resources and the, the political will um, and, and the support to really push on behalf of the mayor of San Antonio a lot of his uh, policy priorities, a lot of which crossed a lot of the systems that Rhonda just talked about, workforce development and making sure that we create Upward, upward mobility uh, opportunities for residents who have been uh, caught in generational uh, poverty for a long time and not just train people for jobs, train people for the jobs that are available in San Antonio that pay a living wage and higher and offer a range of benefits that could really move a family out of poverty within one generation. Uh, we also were pushing policies that focused a lot on changing uh, our, our reality in San Antonio to make sure that we are ready for climate change uh, and that we are Im um, Im implementing policies and practices that mitigate uh, uh, issues and risks, specifically in communities of color, uh, but also how are we adapting our systems to be ready uh, for when weather is unpredictable. And that has happened very recently when we had a freak snowstorm uh, about a year ago. And, and then there are other changes that we've made around violence prevention and public safety. Uh, and so that was a pleasure to do a lot of that work. And I'm proud to say that San Antonio is a city that is taking equity seriously. So a lot of the communities that we centered when we were targeting many of those policies at the mayor's office were people of color. And we, we are actually the only, we're, we're, we're one of the 22 cities that actually has um, racism mm -hmm. as a public health threat, but um, ours actually has action steps to go with the, the proclamation. Yes. Um, so, you know, our our director of health and our mayor and our different city entities take take equity issues pretty seriously. Um, and also, you know, to 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 expand on on Michelle's point, the 
um, the way she described the East Side is also replicated in the South and the West in, among the Latino populations, mm-hmm. right? So, so there's a history of redlining and historic disenfranchisement that's made, um, you know, ongoing disenfranchised communities where the East Side is, you know, has uh, where the where the Black communities traditionally been housed, and the South and the West are where the low income Latino communities were, you know, oh, you can only go to these schools that are not college prep, mm-hmm. but they, you know, you can go to these high schools or you can, you know, and, and you can't buy homes here. You can only buy homes there such that you cannot build wealth. And so the whole, you know, east, south and, and near west side mm-hmm. are are all disenfranchised. And then you have the north that's more affluent. Yeah. So so it's it's um you know, they systematically disenfranchised a number of, of uh, uh, communities here. And to the, you know, getting back to healthcare, we're just now getting a large hospital or they're in the process of getting a large level one trauma center on the, on that's accessible to the South, East and in West sides here. Because, uh, you know, talking about racism and healthcare, that's why I said, you know, you can think about the, the medical encounter, right? But you have to get to the medical encounter. And if uh, you don't have access and literally physical access, you really just can't even get to to, uh, you know, one of the north side hospitals Mm -hmm. or perceived access. You know, I don't feel like that's a place for me or a job, like Michelle said, that doesn't have benefits that allow you to have to to pay for health. And and we're just talking about health care. We've not even like your your body. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not we're not talking about your your teeth. Right. Because somehow somehow your teeth are we decided that's not part of your body and you yeah. have to have extra insurance for those, which yeah. a lot of people don't have. So or your mental health. Yes. Or your yeah, your yeah. mental health or, or mm-hmm. you know, even sometimes your your vision. So I, I you know, since those are all separate systems. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes people have health care and then they don't have dental mm-hmm. or vision care. Right. So so it's, you know, never really thought about how how bizarre that is. Um, but you know, it's, there, there are just some pretty serious access issues mm-hmm. on the east, south, and west side. Yeah. Um, that, uh, I mean, we have a pretty good safety net, but in terms of, you know, large medical center, there are physical access issues near the franchise communities. And yeah. I, I guess one last, uh, you know, cry for help maybe is, you know, reminding, uh, your audience that that and we can speak directly to it. Just what it feels like to live in a state that has rejected federal policies that could really ad- allow us to have the resources to expand insurance access uh, and provide coverage to communities uh, that have not been able to afford healthcare uh, or or have jobs that are not providing um, healthcare coverage for them. So, what is it like to do this work in a state like Texas that has? refuse to adopt Medicaid expansion, that is practically a little bit um, um, pushes back anytime the feds attempt to introduce policies and, re- and, and share resources that can allow us to really be able to tackle the issues that we're grappled with. And when we look at our data, you can see you know, how often we're in the 50s when we're ranked across other states. I think that's something that is reflective of our reality. And we have the most by percentage and per capita uninsured people out of any state in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, you, 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 you touched on so many points there. Um, you touched on the fact that the body itself 
is a grouping of systems that have been separated and teased out, right? So our mental health, our physical health, and our dental um, health being somehow separate as if they don't exist in the same body. And But you also touched on all these components um, within and outside the healthcare systems that are also working together yet seemingly teased apart. And so I'd love for you to both to speak about the differences between systems, institutions, policies, and, and why those differences contribute to us not moving the needle. Why, when we separate out these parts of the body, do we prohibit holistic well-being? In the same way that you know some people are choosing to focus on say interpersonal encounters right i'm a nice person to my black patients my indigenous patients my brown patients therefore i'm not racist that becomes the mantra to then excuse yourself from fighting systems which are different so how how do you define those differences and how do they show up in your work i have an example and this is actually a a family example that happened in a different state, but I think it's pretty typical. So, I mean, for, for those of you who don't know, my, 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 my father is a double amputee um, from Vietnam, like legs amputated very close to the hip. And um, so, you know, I've become a pro at, at I'll, I'll be quote unquote navigating sometimes, you know, and a, and a Sometimes I must choose violence, the VA system, right? Mm. And so, so you know, people, the VA system is nice to my dad, right? They're nice, and he goes to see providers, and he goes to see people, and they're nice as a disabled vet, and they honor his service and all that. However, um, his wheelchair is always falling apart, or it was falling apart one time. And this is, you know, has to do with racism or, or ableism, and um, and they they sent him a letter. And so he's been in a wheelchair, you know, a severe amputation and and a 100% disability rating for 50 plus years, right? So they sent him a letter saying that if he wanted to get a new wheelchair, he had to go make a doctor's appointment and take off work um, for the doctor to say he still needed it. And so I was like, what? And then then that same week he got it. He said he's getting older and he can't pull his his wheelchair into the backseat of his car, you know, because it hurts his shoulder. He, he got this, um, device that pulls it into the, the top of, uh, of a, um, like a container. And so they kept rejecting, rejecting to pay for it because they said, well, you could technically put something else in that container other than a wheelchair, even though it's for wheelchairs. And I was like, what is, what is it to put in there? Is skis? <laughs> I mean, so, so yes, wow. the VA system is for veterans. It's nice. Um, you know, they're nice to to my dad. You know, he can go up there and, and get mints and sit there and they're nice to him. But, you know, he has to somehow show that his legs didn't magically regenerate after 50 years and that he's not going to carry skis on top of his car mm-hmm. in order to get like basic services so that that he's not out at the store and people have to help put his wheelchair together. So, I mean, that's kind of the difference between systems and People, everybody likes vets these days. That's like a hot topic in the country. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. But, oh, your wheelchair is falling apart. Yeah, you're going to have to write, you know, multiple emails and you're going to have to go see the doctor and then they're going to have to condemn your wheelchair so you can get a new one. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just kind of a, like in my regular life, how I would have to negotiate different systems. 
One of the, the things that I'm hearing between both of your answers is a beautiful synergy between how you both work within and outside the academy and within and outside community. So can you talk to our listeners about the steps you take to partner with and engage community organizations and what values guide your partnerships? I'm the academic, I'm the one that has to kind of be the external person or the outsider, even though I don't, I live in the community, right? So, I mean, there's always this academic versus community type of thing. Like I'm, I'm in, you know, we're, Michelle and I are in my office. My office is downtown. Like I am right next to the county court and the downtown office and bail bonds and city hall. And I'm right in the middle of it, but somehow, you know, we're just that whole reputation of academia. You're not in the, in the, somehow not part of the community. So it's, I, I, at some point, I hope we can just break that down in terms of how academia, um, the reward system in academia, who academia hires and how we do things such that we are also the community. Um, You know, but that's going to take a long time. But in terms of, you know, my, some of the ways in which I engage folks is not just to show up when you, want something or have a project, mm-hmm. you know, you have to kind of go and hang out. It's like diversity, equity, inclusion. You can't just go and take an anti-bias or, you know, anti-racism training and be like, oh, I'm anti-racist. Then you go home and you never interact in your own personal circle with anybody that doesn't look like you, mm-hmm. right? So if you really want to be anti-racist and you really want to be, you know, uh, uh, somebody that that um, facilitates and, and, and pushes belonging and inclusion, you have to change how you move through your life, right? You have to go and you realize, hey, when outside of work, when I go home, everybody looks like me. At the restaurants I go to, the events I go to, everybody looks like me. You you have to push your own envelope and do some different things and expose yourself to some different things and, and choose to move through the world in a way that reflects that you are about, you know, inclusion and belonging and anti-racism. And even in engaging community-based organizations, the same thing. I just try to go to things, right? Go to stuff. I mean, there's a uh, another colleague that we have who's a um, works at a community uh, who directs a community center on the west side in, in um, the disenfranchised Hispanic or Latino side. And you know, she sends stuff, and we all send each other things about, hey, this is going on here and in this school and this community, and it, it helps us actually know what's going on. But then. You know, when there is a, a opportunity for funding or when there is a an issue that we could, you know, uh, collaborate and, and address, you know, a little bit more powerfully because they're, you know, with the partnership that they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you guys are here all the time or they already know us. So so um, and, and it's not even so much that I have, you know, do that for my job. It's I do that because I live here, too. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I don't not live here. I live mm-hmm. in this community and I work in this community and I go eat and go to art events and things like that. So I think it's it kind of starts with how you see yourself. So if you you can't do things. Well, I, I for an extended period of time, you can't have how you approach your work and how you approach your personal life. With two different philosophies. At some point, there's some kind of merger in how you operate. Mm-hmm. And if you try to separate them and you operate one way at work and that's not really true to how you operate in the rest of your life, 
it's just not really going to be work. It's not going to work and it's not going to be authentic. So I mean, you really have to kind of do some self-reflection and think, how am I moving through this world? And am I moving through this world in a, from a personal perspective, yeah. in an anti-racist way, in a, in a way that when I in, engage folks, you know, I'm, I always moving through with empathy and intentionality. And like you said before, curiosity and learning about other folks. And if you don't do that in your day to day, it's really hard to do that when you get into the community because it's like putting a mask on or putting a uniform on for your job. I've got my community engagement uniform on now that I'm at work. Let me go do that. You have to do it all the time or it just, it, it, this is not really going to gel. I, I feel, I've always felt like an external partner as well. I've mostly done, I've, I've gone to some super nerdy schools, but I've not necessarily done the academic track. And one thing that I just learned about myself when I was in school was that, you know, I learned I was a much better. I was better able to master what I was learning at school when I was practicing it at the same time. And so, a lot of the joy that I got in my introduction to the public health field came from internships or from volunteering and being a part of community. Uh, but relevant to that, and just something that Rhonda said triggered this answer for me is, you know, I'm an immigrant to this country. There's no city that I've lived in in in, in the United States where I was born or raised. Or the the longest that I stayed in one city was in Chicago for almost 10 years. And now I live in San Antonio, which is not only not my birth city or my, nor is this my birth country, but it's also a city where there aren't a lot of people that look like me. Um, and so, and then I've, I've, my career has really moved in a direction that has required community engagement to be a key part of everything I do before I, I was doing the policy work that I'm doing now. I used to be in the philanthropic world and worked for three foundation across three foundations across two cities. Um, and a lot of the work that we were doing in the philanthropic space was really centered around how do we change or how do we complement the funding model that funders, uh, foundations have where they give money to nonprofits with it also investing in creating spaces where folks can come together uh, using collective impact as a model, uh, system leaders, uh, structural leaders, uh, policy data folks, and really work together to address an issue that no one can address individually in the community. Um, and I think what I learned from that process, in addition, co-signing everything that Rhonda said, you got to walk, live the walk, and walk, walk your talk. Um, is is you know, there's many ways to for institutions that have resources and power to be able to share decision making uh, with community members. Um, I'm proud to be in a city that has centered equity in all of its policies. There, it's not a something that happens overnight, but that's better than many other cities that I've lived in. And what that means is a lot of the work and a lot of the conversation in the public sector as well as in the nonprofit sector are really beginning to center around how are, how are our approaches and how is all of our work, not just the resources that we allocate towards issues, but the process that we use to address these issues how are, how are we creating equitable spaces that include representation from the community? How are we getting better at planning with community, centering the, the, the needs and the perspectives of the folks who we look at or we, we, when we're looking at the data? And, and how does that shift in paradigm and process really help us get closer to the impact that we want to have? And I think center to that is inviting, not, not only showing up in community, um, when, when just to be a part of community and not only when you need something, giving to community, um, planning and, and making decisions with community early on, 
not just using community for surveys and focus groups, uh, but really bringing them on as equal partners when it comes to deciding on strategies um, and making sure that you're returning to residents for accountability, uh, to report back on the work that you've been doing, but also to check if it's actually working out the way that you all thought it was going to work out. And if not, how do we, again, meet with residents to say, why is this not working? We thought it was the thing that you wanted, right? Um, and that being an iterative process that kind of never ends and is like, very exhausting for some of us who are introverts. So again, I think that there's a theme here happening around how titles, mm -hmm. body parts, and pieces of the oppression machine, mm. there's this idea that they don't work together, yet they have to work together in order to change, create healthy communities, create well-being. And so I'm, I'm again asking, or not asking, but adding, now the, the whole academic community divide, because you both are spot on. All of us are a part of some yeah. community. And some of us are a part of deeply marginalized communities. And when we show up to do this work, we do not take our community hat off because our experiences are always with us. And when we leave work, we don't necessarily take our academic hat off because that filters the lens through which we view the world, right? We can't unlearn the things that we learn at work when we go home. And so again, thinking through this idea of, of healing and, and healthcare, and wellness, if we don't even have an undisputed understanding of what it means to be a person and what it means to have all of these parts that have to be in working order in, in order for us to be whole and well, right? So the community parts, the government parts, the healthcare parts, the body parts, um, the titles and the career parts, the community parts, um, we, we, I'm, I'm seeing and feeling a theme of sort of just disenfranchised people because so much of what we do, there's no cohesion. And so I'm, I'm thinking about what is required then to change, to shift, to radically reimagine our, our work, our systems, all these parts, what's required What's required to build cohesion and fight against all of these little things that would rather see us torn apart into a bunch of tiny buckets so that we can't fight, right? Because you can't fight when you're not whole. I think some of it's goals and reward systems. Mm -hmm. So I mean, speaking from like a, you know, I'll, I'll put, I won't say I, put, I have, I have one hat and I just flip it around. Like it's either <laughs> going to be head to the back or head to the front. So I'm going to flip the hat to the front and talk a little bit of academic terms that that um, if you think about like a system, a complex dynamic system, it always seeks to kind of be at, it's at, a, at a, uh, a dynamic equilibrium, right, D depending on what its goal is. Okay, so, so what happens is that all these systems that interact don't have the same goal. Right. So they're not going to adapt in the same way and they're not going to function in the same way. Exactly. You know, healthcare systems, sometimes some systems are to remain financially viable. Some systems are, are designed to maintain power over <laughs> certain certain individuals and certain communities. Some systems, the goal is unclear. So I think that, you know, if people and some people are in denial of what their real goal is and have a different goal, you know, that they might 
say on the outside, but the goal is really different. And even in academia, we've had to really think about what is our goal? You know, is our is our goal to just publish papers and, and add to the academic literature or is it really to create community change? And I think that there needs to be some discussions of goals because systems, you know, when you push a system and you try to, you know, you try to tweak it in such a way that you're getting the biggest bang for the buck, right? That you're trying to push levers that, that have the most impact. And, but when people are pushing levers based on what their own goals are, nobody's pushing the same levers, mm-hmm. right? So I think that if you have all these systems, you know, healthcare and, um, you know, city governments and community and neighbor, neighborhood groups and, uh, academia, the reward systems and the goals are not the same, even though everybody would like to see the community healthy financially, spiritually, physically, mentally, and socially. Every system has its own goals for survival, and those goals are not the same. So everybody's running around pushing levers that are going to keep themselves intact. And some people don't. And some systems don't really have any levers to push. Yeah. Um, I'd add, I've worked in the nonprofit sector for my whole career. Uh, I think the funding work was incredibly interesting, and I think the, the philanthropics system and sector really circled around a concept called collective impact. Um, and I find it fascinating, I think, for a variety of reasons. One, it's a model that really um, shows what it looks like to require community to be at the table with other systems that are trying to make a difference in their community. And I, I personally think in theory and in practice, when it's done well, in a way that really respects all the values that are necessary to make that work um, impactful and, and meaningful, it is one of the best models that I've seen that really takes into a heart the need for cross-sector collaboration, multi-sector, cross-sector collaboration in order to address a collective issue um, and requires the members who come to the table to address those issues to not just agree and say, this is our goal, back to what Rhonda is saying, um, and this is what this is the issue that we need to address in our community. Third grade literacy, uh, whatever, whether it's you know high cholesterol, diabetes, wanting to reduce amputations. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what sector, education, health. Um, this process, part of its values, has built in the idea that in order to uh, affect or to lead to systems change, you have to bring a series of partners across sectors in order to address that issue, but to also align their resources. Not we, we're going to get together and apply for a grant. It's okay, food bank, you have a budget that is supposed to address food deserts. Okay, you urban farms in the community, you guys are literally growing crops and you're saying that you, you, you're not giving out all of them. Okay, school district, you touch the most kids every day and we know that kids are going home hungry. If we all got together, what could we do together that we could not do alone in order to end uh, child hunger? Um, and and not and and how do we change and align what we already have in our own shops to make that goal a reality? Which I think is really radical than when it, than some of the goals or some of the processes that collaborative uh, folks use when they're together. Um, it is quite possible to participate in a collaboration without changing yourself as an institution in order to reach that goal. Um, and collective impact requires 
let every partner at the table participate in what is called mutually reinforcing activities, aligning their resources, their programs, their leadership to make sure that that organization is doing its part and showing up to help reach that goal in partnership with all these other organizations across multiple sectors that care about the same issue. Um, and I think that's a really beautiful model that captures, it's, you know, it's not perfect, not everyone is doing it well, it's definitely a growing field, but I think captures and really solidifies all the different steps that need to be in place in order to affect systems change. And I think that why it's not always working well is what I'm thinking about over the, you know, something happened, you know, acutely over the past couple of weeks, but I've thought about over like the last five, 10 years of, 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 of my career is that um, I was like, oh, we're not, you know, some of us are in preschool and some of us are in fifth grade in terms of understanding systems mm -hmm. because I've been to mm -hmm. many other organizations and been to their events where uh, social determinants of health are a new phenomena or epiphany. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's social determinants of health and it's, it's new to, to some organizations and thinking that way, you know, in, in 2022, whereas there are some of us that have lived it and known this for, you know, the past several decades. And so not only are, you know, the, the representation sometimes not aligned and the goals not aligned, there are some organizations that, oh, yeah, this is how we make change and it's new to them. And I'm, I'm glad that they finally got there, but it's relatively new. And because it's new, you know, and really order, in order to make a change, in order to be anti-racist, you have to, it, it, it can't be willy-nilly, like it can't be sprinkles on the cake. It has to be the flour, right? So if you are actually going to become an anti-racist organization, anti-racist, trauma-informed, all those things that kind of go together organization, it takes it, it can take some time and it should take some time, right? That you have to, this all has to be attached to your mission, vision, values, to your strategic plan, to your business model, to your budget lines, right? So, so if you don't have any, if you, if this is new to you and you've not structured your hiring, your onboarding, your, your budget, your strategy, you've not aligned your strategy and your goals to your budget to, to, to take on activities that that um, that are relate to anti-racism and addressing all these social issues in the community that were caused by institutionalized and system systems-based racism. It takes a while for an organization to get there and then to be able to operate in a in a way that okay, you know, we have the infrastructure, the buy-in, mm -hmm. and the understanding to really get in there with the community and 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 do this properly. And I respect that that takes a while, but if it's not all aligned, you know, in, in the kind of protoplasm of your organization, um, then it, it's going to make that collective impact harder to, to happen. And, and different organizations are at different places. I mean, I remember when I was, um, I was an assistant professor, you know, at a stressful time. And my mother asked, when my mother was alive, she said, why are you so stressed out? What is this research you're doing? What are you, what is this driving you crazy? And so I told her something about, you know, one of my projects and it was a health equity project. Oh, I knew that. <laughs> you just have to do that to tell all these folks that, that don't know that have been oppressing folks. And I was like, yeah, mama, that, I guess that's what I do. So, I mean, a lot of what we do is put numbers and, and, and put some infrastructure to what the community already knows. <laughs> 
right. That the community they're lives. Living, they're living in Yes, they live. But we, we just put some voice and some some numbers and some measurement to what the community lives every single day for centuries. Yeah. Some organizations it just don't know how to to yeah. um, to align themselves mm-hmm. so, so they can operate in this way. Some are learning how and it takes time. It could it could you may have to wait for leadership to turn over. You may have to wait for certain retirements to happen. You know, or not wait, but you may have to kind of wait it out and push through those things. You may have to realign budget priorities, budget models. You may have to realign your board. All of these things that 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 have that if you really want to be uh, uh, an empathetic, sincere player mm-hmm. in these collective impact models to really make change, you can't do that with one or two people in your organization that get it. Right, your organization has to be on board. So I would say if we're going to do any kind of funding or policy change or anything, or if you're going to really kind of push, um, you know, you want to fund organizations to do this work, that they also need some funding to do a, a self-reflection to see where they are in terms of um, being an anti-racist organization or being able to operate in that space, period. Because Otherwise, you're just out there putting sprinkles in the community and the organization's putting sprinkles on itself. Yeah. I think the word that I'm pulling out of these answers is alignment, right? This idea of mutually reinforcing activities, right? So we need alignment within our organizations. We need alignment across our organizations. But you also touched on funders. We need alignment with our funders, too, because they also can create exponential barriers for us to do our work, whether it's prescribing what we should be doing or, pres- or, 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 or prescribing how we should be doing it. So what advice do you have for funders then, for funding organizations to support this work? And- well, we, can, we can talk about funders. So, <laughs> so yeah, um, in, in terms of funders, I, I had this conversation with a, a colleague one time mm-hmm. about, you know, if we looked at all of the money that was put I'll even go back to St. Louis mm-hmm. as an example mm-hmm. that was funded in St. Louis or Chicago or here. And mm-hmm. some of it's on the north side, some of it's on the south. So it's St. Louis is north and south. And, and mm-hmm. you know, some of it's on this side of Del Mar, some of it's on that side of Del Mar. And here, you know, some of it's on, um, uh, on the east side, some of it's on the west side. And mm-hmm. if you think about, you know, these are these are generational billion dollar problems mm-hmm. that you know, if you're funding a $250 project, mm-hmm. I mean, $250,000 project, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, it's going to do some good for some folks, but um, unless, again, you, you have that alignment yeah. where you could take $250,000 and all the organizations are aligned and everybody's going to bang on the same lever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a mutually agreed upon lever with that $250,000. And you can make some significant impact. But if you don't have that systems alignment, the, the $250,000 is not going to go as far as it could. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, looking at being a little bit more diverse and creative with the funding to, to help create alignment, to help organizations become aligned with with uh, the ability to to address systems and policy issues um, in in response to to the community, uh, and also to think about maybe even some kind of geographic um, yeah. types of yeah. of funding. Like, yeah. hey, you know, let's see what it would take to turn X, Y, and Z neighborhood 
around, yeah. but everybody has yeah. to be in alignment. Um, and also really like what, what we think is valuable. I, I think sometimes in funding and in um, getting grants funded, it, it has to be really excellent science and, and, and clean and easy to follow and, 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 and clean and, and, that's not always what these problems look like, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. so I think some, some not even leniency, but kind of different ways to evaluate mm-hmm. some of the grants or proposals, or to have some more mechanisms. I, mean, I know they have mechanisms at different fund, uh, among different funders that that reflect, um, you know, high risk uh, uh, proposals. But I mean, really not not in terms of high risk, but Maybe things that are more formative, because sometimes things are messy and uncertain, and you need to do a project that that addresses or that works within that uncertainty um, with the common goal, and, and and just to maybe think about funding differently and what what alignment of systems yeah. looks like, and not always assume. Um, I guess my this would be my last point when you talk about alignment of systems. Mm-hmm. Um, to not, I think that sometimes when you talk about alignment of systems, there's always a gold standard yeah. that's not necessarily, okay, we're all going to align with the community or those goals, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, usually the alignment with systems always kind of follows alignment with the system that already has the most power and it just kind of perpetuates, yeah. you know, the issues the power dynamics that already exist and to really think about what do we mean by alignment, Um, you know, which, which might mean somebody, some folks might perceive that they're giving up their proverbial power, which they're, they're not. Um, So I think thinking about alignment, what that means and how to make sure that that grant funding facilitates alignment and, um, and being willing to fund some things that don't look super clean yeah and i mean i'm, I'm gonna start off by saying many of my good friends and my best friends are of funders uh that used to be my past life uh like i mentioned earlier i've worked for three foundations and one in chicago two here in san antonio different capacities and systems and structures um i've also been a public sector funder i used to be uh, a health administrator in the maternal hiv aids prevention department uh, at, at the state of Illinois Department of Public Health. Um, and so seen, seen it in many different ways. I've served on boards in nonprofits that are recipients of funding. I have done regranting at the nonprofit level from federal and also uh, private funders. So one that had many times, I can speak with a little bit of insight and love and care for my, my, pre, my community. And say, you know, the funding community is just as siloed as any other sector that that we we can discuss here today. Uh, but especially so because uh, funders, in in many ways, have very little accountability beyond their own boards. They can, particularly private funders, they can most of the time do what they need to do within the scope of their bylaws and 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 whatever their taxonomy says that they support. They don't necessarily have to be in community together. They can work forever in perpetuity in a silo or in a vacuum from how other funders are behaving in the same community and sometimes focus on the same issue. And there aren't actually a lot of incentives for them to work together because 
you know, it's just the nature of the field is it's, 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 you just give, your job is to give money out and, and you can, you can feel like you're having an impact from an organizational perspective, depending on your idea of your sense of need without actually collaborating or working or learning from other uh, funders. Not saying that that hasn't happened. I actually think in Chicago, where I, I grew up in the funding world, I'm really grateful for a community of funders that came together frequently. Um, and there was a great spirit of collaboration amongst funders who are funding the same type of work. And I think that city exemplifies great ways that uh, foundations can reach across their silos to work together to have a more dynamic impact. Um, I'd also say that, you know, the field of philanthropy uh, primarily is in, it's almost like charter schools in the public school system. Like the ideal version of philanthropy is really investing in innovative practices uh, that can then be replicated and adopted by the public sector. Um, and I think, of course, there are many goals when it comes to philanthropy, but at the heart of it, that's why our philanthropy started. I think a lot of foundations don't necessarily live in that place anymore. A lot of foundations have gotten very comfortable supporting uh, a lot of mitigation strategies. And, but there's, I think, a lot, just like any sector, a lot of evolution in the philanthropic world that is really beginning to think, especially for some of our national funders, about how incentivizing collaboration, incentivizing work and, 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 um, and efforts in community that actually attempt to change the system uh, in a way that complements the regular grant making uh, that I think mitigates the impact of the system in communities daily um, and how those two strategies have to both exist in order for them to start seeing the type of gains uh, that they, many of them have been trying to fund uh, their way out of for centuries, if, uh, yeah, centuries. Um, and so I think I would like to uh, really commend uh, and also uh, recommend that fund more funders start thinking about their role in supporting and funding systems change work which is, takes a long time, so requires more patient and a different reorientation about the continuum of impact and outcomes that they need to look out for. You can't expect change overnight. Uh, funders have to override uh, sometimes what I felt that was called the shiny, shiny thing, ostrich syndrome, really funding the next sexy thing uh, versus really standing by the best practices that have been shown to work, even though they're not fun and sexy like fluoride in water. Um, that, that can really make a difference in the communities that they care about and really sticking to, uh, sticking by community over decades to make sure that the, their investments are adding up to something. Hippity hopping, you know, from one strategy to another, abandoning initiatives when they're not moving as fast as, it, as, as we would all prefer that they move. Um, all of that has been shown to really hold back our ability to be impactful. Uh, and so that is my recommendation today. I might change tomorrow, but that's where my heart is. You know, you, you both have said so much wonderful, wonderful, just gems of information for our audience, for our listeners, for me. And I am so appreciative of that. So this last question is really, you have two options. The first option is, what advice do you have for people who are entering this work? Because I we we see a lot of folks getting really impassioned about this work because of all of the current crises that have been revealed through media, through through social media, et cetera, and and through actual crisis, right? 
But then we also have folks who are just, um, you know, jumping on the bandwagon who might end up falling in love with this work too. So what advice do you have for folks? And then the other option is, what do you hope the legacy of your work will be? I'm going to answer the first one because you actually, in, in your last sentence, you said people might fall in love with the work. And you have to do that because sometimes for every step forward, you take three steps back. And if you don't love the work and you really don't love the people in the community, you will get frustrated and you will stop. So you really have to have a, a genuine love for the work and a genuine love for the community that you can just imagine you get excited about this community becoming more healthy and more of everything that they dream of. And you can't wait to see that happen. And you want to go and celebrate that with everybody. You have to, you know, you're going, you're going to realize when you get there, you don't know what you're doing. You have to figure it out every day. Some of the skills you learn don't apply. You know, the first thing when I, when I finished my doctorate program and I went and worked in local public health, I was like, oh, that's not how anything works, what I learned in school. And you had to refigure out how everything works in the community and in your community in particular. And so um, it's really having some love and dedication for the folks in your community that you're also part of or the community that you're partnering with. And if you don't, you're not going to be able to stay the course. You could end up, you know, um, actually doing harm by just popping in and bopping out. Mm-hmm. Um, so really to have some love and dedication um, to the community that you're working with. Uh, otherwise, you know, you're not going to be able to weather the storm and there are storms and there's frustrations and other, and there, there are, you know, fantastic, lovely moments and there are frustrating moments. And you have to be able to to rock in that boat through all of them mm-hmm. towards the goal of of you know health and 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 uh, optimal well being for that community. If you can't if you can't rock steady in that boat with yeah. folks, don't get in the boat. I'll add to that the legacy. Something I'm sure is my my legacy is always that's a short answer, which is. I did a fellowship when I was in graduate school called the Albert Schweitzer Fellowship, who was a guy who was a doctor who went to uh, start a hospital system or a clinic system um, in Africa. Um, and like him for a couple of reasons, but he has a quote that says, you know, you, you, I made, he says he made his life his argument. Um, and that's one of the most profound, simple statements that I, I always give. I, I have experienced and I always share when folks ask me, what it is that I want to do with my life. And it's less about vocation and more about what back to what Rhonda was saying earlier. Am I living my life in a way that really captures what my argument for a better world should be? Um, which is not a place that I can I say I'm, I thrive in perfectly all the time. I'm not always showing up at my best, but what I want to be remembered by was showing up and showing up well and, and, and show and, and, and showing that I cared. Um, and that 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 people could could speak to that work, uh, but I do want to touch on the other question as well because I think I think a lot about particularly the people of color who are doing this work on the ground, and that there is a cost to this work, especially because most of the transformation that we see, some of it are seeds that we'll never see come up 
when we're talking about structural racism uh, that would make a difference in our lives and maybe even in our children's lives, especially when you live in a state like Texas, um, that, that, that systems can and will feel oppressive. And what we know from the public health world is that that oppression makes its way into your body. Um, and, you know, capitalism is a hell of a drug. And unfortunately, also, capitalism does not value the work that we do on the ground in, in ways that it values many of the careers or the jobs that pay very well. And so, you know, I, I, I'm always very focused and concerned about the liberation of people of color, especially black people. And I think a lot about us who are doing this work that is so demanding, that is so painful, that can be so disappointing. Uh, and you may never see the, the change that you want to see in your lifetime. And what does it mean to show up and be in that space and make your life your argument every day? Um, and so what I would say to folks who are considering and who are in this work is find ways to be properly compensated so that you can be able to retire one day. And if there's some certificates you can pick up along the way, like how are you doing this work in a way that builds you up and allows you to take care of yourself and that it's okay to tap out when those things are not happening. Because without you, you there is no contribution. There is no legacy. Uh, and that's a balance, I think, that we don't always think about when we're doing this work, which can make us feel like, you know, the sacrifices are part of part of what it's about. Uh, but I do think there's, there's a cost that's, that's too high. Um, and if we're doing this work, the systems facing work, this anti-racism work, we've got to be able to take care of ourselves. And that looks like very different things. And in, in a capitalistic system, to me, that's making sure that you are at least making enough to take care of yourself, that you're able to take care of yourself and take time out to take care of yourself and your family when you need to. And that it's, they are, it, there is a way to do that. And, and that's what we need in order to stay in this fight long term. And I think that that also, that was lovely. <laughs> lovely, yes. But uh, that, that also kind of circles back to really authentic, authentically engaging and loving and being with the community because I have shown up. Uh, broke down mm -hmm. and tired and and folks in the community and community-based organizations and uh you know mama and auntie that work at the front desk of community-based organizations have patched me up and stood me back up before mm -hmm. so so um you know even though it's frustrating because you're 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 really fighting through mm -hmm. policies and systems and you're pushing through those those things but you know to really kind of to be able to engage with the community is really like a privilege and it's it's fun and they really you know even though you you work with some communities that have been historically disenfranchised and things like that they you know the community always will you know has always kind of stood me back up and dusted me back off and given me some you know Snack, yeah, <laughs> a beverage, and and, 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 and kept me going. Yes. So yes. that is so true of community. They will hold you accountable. That's for sure. Um, I want to to take a moment just to acknowledge the wisdom you dropped today and give you your flowers while you are here and just express my extreme gratitude for the work that you both are doing. Um, thank you. Thank you for this work and thank you for joining us today on the Critical Futures podcast. Um, if, you, if you ever want to come back and talk to us again, we welcome that. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Critical Features Podcast. If you're feeling inspired and looking for more resources, please check out www.ihje.org backslash podcast for show notes and links to resources and to subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.